It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everyone. It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And today on the show... I don't know what I am. You know, I don't feel like I have a good job description for myself. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to introduce you as something, and I think I am going to call you a comedian and an actor. Well, you're, you're welcome to call me whatever you <laughs> like, but see, but see. So, yeah, I am going to call Michael Ian Black a comedian and actor. I mean, the guy has been doing funny stuff in public for a couple of decades now. He was a cast member of The State, the MTV sketch comedy show, back in the early 90s. He co-created and starred in two Comedy Central sitcoms, Stella and Michael and Michael Have Issues. He's done stand-up, he's done comedy albums, he's done comedy movies. So, a long comedy resume, I would say. But Michael Ian Black still doesn't know quite what he's up to or how he got to where he is today. And that right there is a big theme of his new memoir, You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. Michael Ian Black and I talked about all of the above, including marriage, sex, death, and yes, humiliations aplenty. You know, I thought I learned everything I needed to know about you from your previous book, uh, Chicken Cheeks. Sure. It's an insightful <laughs> compendium. Do you want to explain what that book was about? It's about animal butts. <laughs> it's my first children's book called Chicken Cheeks, and it's, it's basically just a, a silly book of, uh, of animals and their butts. Um, basically just two words per butt, right? Well, I don't want to give away the ending. <laughs> but at the end, in the, in the book we call it The Ends, <laughs> there's a longer phrase that just will blow your mind. <laughs> yeah, I won't give that away, but just to give people a taste of what I mean by two-word phrases, things like an illustration of a deer's butt and the, the phrase deer rear, right? And it's like that through much of the book. Well, through through all of the book. <laughs> I first learned about it when you did a, an appearance on a fake talk show with your friend Michael Showalter. And you, you basically described this book. And I thought it was a joke. It must be a joke. I mean, I know they put out children's books like that. But you made fun of it and said it was easy money. And I thought, oh, that's absolutely true. That's exactly how those books happen. But were you serious about your own book being kind of a cynical ploy for money? No. I mean... <laughs> I mean, everything I do in, in some shape or form is a cynical ploy for money, but I, I also did uh, sincerely write the book thinking it was, it was a cute book. It was a cute book. Did, did your own kids agree? They did. At the time, they were younger than they are now because that's the way time works. But <laughs> they, yeah, when they, when they, were, they, were, they were a good age for it when it first came out. Um, Amazon tells me that if I like Chicken Cheeks, that I will also like some other guy's book called uh, Chicken Butt. Yeah, you won't. <laughs> yeah, I'm very loyal to you, to tell you the truth, so I didn't even click on it. You definitely won't like it. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the new book. Um, and this definitely is different from the kids' book. I mean, this, this one, from what I understand, was actually very difficult to write. Well, there's a lot more words. <laughs> I'm thinking about emotions here. Oh, oh, emotionally. <laughs> um, well, I mean, first of all, it's not a children's book. It's, it's, a, it's a book for, for uh, people who have mastered the art of reading, or at least are competent at it. And uh, it's a memoir, 
which I did not really envision myself writing. I didn't, I didn't think I, I wanted to write something like that. But I wrote another book, a book of essays called My Custom Van, and it was this, uh, what I think is a funny book, uh, but, but very impersonal and very absurd and very surreal. And when I got done with that, I sort of thought, you know, I'm glad I did that and I'm proud of it, but I'd like to write something a little more personal, just to see if I can, just to see if I'm capable of it. And the, uh, and the end result of that is, is this book. And you say uh, a little more personal, Michael? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a lot more, maybe exponentially more. <laughs> did you write the book you set out to write, or did it change? I think every book changes as you get into it. Um, I, I say that as the author of two books, uh, so I'm clearly an expert <laughs> on the subject. But I knew... I, I, I knew sort of generally speaking what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be a sort of honest accounting of my own um, state of mind, let's say. And when I started writing it, what I realized was I only cared about, in terms of writing, the things that are important to me, and the things that are important to me right now are my, my wife and my kids. And so it, it became much more about that than I had anticipated when I first sat down to write it. Um. Did you make a, a vow to yourself that you would be super honest and soul-bearing and self... What's the right word? It's not flagellating, self-revealing? I was going to suggest flagellating. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to write as honestly as I could, um, and that was, that was my main goal as I was writing. Now, the self-flagellation part of it, you know, part of that comes out of, uh, honest emotions and, and sort of beating myself up, which I do on a continual basis. But part of it came from trying to figure out how to be funny in this book as well as, as honest. And because I'm writing about real people, I didn't want to make them the butt of the joke. Uh, and, and so I found myself making myself the butt of the joke more often than not. And look, I'll beat up my wife too in the book, metaphorically speaking. Okay. Yeah, well, I think you know, there are a fair number of confessional books out there, right? I mean, self-revealing memoirs and things like that, where the person uh, almost martyrs him or herself. Uh, you know, I was a bastard. I was an asshole. I was bad to everybody. But now I've turned things around. Um, your book is different in several respects. Yes, you were an asshole sometimes, and you say that. Uh, but you're not afraid to say that other people are assholes, too, and pains in the ass. Um and also that in some ways you change, in some ways you haven't. You, you don't make any pretense of having completely killed the inner asshole, right? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this isn't a journey of self-discovery where in the end I'm sort of like, oh, and I'm a better person for it. I'm just trying to relate, honestly, sort of what happened and letting the reader draw their own conclusions about it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, like, look, I'm a beautiful butterfly that emerged from this chrysalis, because <laughs> I'm not. Um, I mean, look, I am. I'm a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky, it's a tricky um, uh, path to walk, though. I mean, there's just revealing what a jerk you were, uh, how less than admirable you were at various points in your life. There's the risk of hurting other people's feelings. There is the risk of having this book fall into a kind of cookie-cutter category of the 
tell-all memoir or of getting off the hook too easily by t- saying you're an asshole, you know, right? I guess. I, I wasn't really conscious of any of that when I was writing it. I didn't read any memoirs in preparation. I, I sort of avoided them. Actually, sort of as a general rule, I don't read autobiographical stuff because I, because I tend not to believe it. I, can, I tend to think it, it, it ends up painting people in too flattering a light. Um, I think they can be self-serving. And, and maybe sort of subconsciously I was like, well, I'll do the opposite. I'll be, I'll be uh, well, self-flagellating, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, my only goal, really, was to just sort of be as honest as I could uh, about the things that I was writing about. And the, the only thing that I was, I was worried about in terms of comparing myself to other um, books about was just the quality of the writing. All I really cared about was, was honesty and, and the quality of the writing. I wanted, I wanted to write well. That's what I was mostly concerned about. Hmm. Uh, and before we get too far into the book, I'm, I'm too, like you, very uh, suspicious of memoirs and autobiography. And uh, actually, as an interviewer, don't usually go after those. And uh, truth and the difference between truth and semi-fiction and fiction is a lot on my mind these days, partly in the wake of the whole Mike Daisy thing and a lot of other similar things over the years. So would you state for the record that everything in this book is true? Um, I would say 90-plus percent of it is. There's a couple times where I, like, uh, combined a character. Yeah. And my, I, know my, I know my brother, like, had quibbles with things that he said didn't happen the way I say they happened. But to my recollection, pretty much everything in there uh, is true. Um, but I also go to pains at the end to, to sort of say, look, this is my story. Other people may remember differently. Certainly my wife remembers certain things differently than I remember them. Um, and I think, I think sort of memory is faulty sort of just by, by its own nature. So I'm sure, I'm sure somebody could come through and be like, oh, that didn't happen like that, or that didn't happen like that. Um, and present me with a smoking gun, and I'd be like, oh, I guess you're right. But in my estimation, it is almost entirely true. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I meant. I, I mean, I just wanted to make sure there were no completely made-up people, completely made-up chapters of your life or anything like that. No, I mean, I changed names. Right. Other than that, no. Right. Mercifully. And I did combine one character, <laughs> as I said, as I've owned up to. God damn it! <laughs> you're brutal! <laughs> Well, let's, 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 let's get away from the abstract and get to the concrete. Some of the things I'm talking about when I say revealing things about yourself that might have been a little painful to reveal, um, the fact that you didn't really love your newborn daughter at all. Well, but in fairness, I didn't love my newborn son either. <laughs> I just don't think I went to as great a pains to say it as I did with my daughter. Well, the thing is, what I expected, based on all the literature was my kid would come out of my wife, and I'd be like, and I would just fall instantly in love with this creature. But the fact is, I didn't, and this irascible little thing was basically a stranger screwing up my life at every turn. I guess there is such a thing as love at first sight, but I mean, if you don't fall in love with your newborn upon entry into the world, I don't know what's going to make you do that. And I, I, You know, I just didn't. It's not that you don't care about the kid, but this sort of euphoria um, that I was expecting didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It took a long time um, because my, because I had terrible babies. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the, the fault is entirely with them. You understand? <laughs> was it was it painful to write that though, or was that just? Do you feel okay about it? 
no. felt perfectly fine with it. Uh-huh. Because, I, because what I felt like was, I, I felt like if I go through this, if I'm having these feelings, there's got to be, it, it, this has got to be more common than I think. I mean, other people must experience this the way I experience this. It's, I just don't believe that I'm unique in this respect, but nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever talks about the fact that, you know, you might not love your baby when your baby enters this world. And you might hate your wife sometimes, and you might hate yourself sometimes. Some people talk about hating themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like I wanted to sort of puncture um, balloons, uh, uh, these sort of mythological balloons, particularly about parenthood, because it was all new to me, and nobody had told me these things. By the way, the title of the book is You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. There's a fair number of humiliations in here. Uh, you say you're pretty bad at sex. Yeah. Quote, unquote, it's rare that I can bring a girl to orgasm, and when I do, it feels fluky, like sinking a basketball from half court. I did say that. <laughs> um, I was particularly proud of the imagery of <laughs> sinking a basketball from half court. I was like, oh, that's a very... See, this is what I'm talking about, the sort of well-written aspect of it. Um, you talk about uh, the kind of icky process of going to a sperm bank to make a, a donation and being led to, <laughs> being led to a room... Masturbation uh, chamber, yeah. <laughs> about which you say, uh, until I visit an actual sadomasochistic dungeon a couple of years later, it's the oddest place for sexual activity I've ever encountered. And then you go on to not tell us about the dungeon. I know, and I, I sort of regret that, but uh, I, I thought about that, but I was like, you know what, it's not really germane. Uh, I didn't want to get too off topic because this the sperm bank story itself is a little off topic from what I'm talking about. It's meant to illustrate uh, something else. So I, I decided not to include that. Although, interestingly enough, the person with whom I went to that sadomasochistic dungeon apparently is writing her own book and is including that story in her book. And who is that? I guess I can tell you. Sure you can. Uh, since she's writing the damn book. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, her name's Kennedy. She was, an, she was a VJ on MTV years ago. And uh, that's who I visited the, the S&M dungeon with. And I re- just recently got back in touch with her over Twitter and she told me that she's including that in her book. Um, was this sort of a journalistic expedition, or was this to actually indulge? Oh, no, no, no. It was not to indulge. <laughs> um, but nor was it entirely journalistic. Voyeuristic is more okay. what it was. Okay. But you're a, a comedian. I mean, that would be a good thing to do, right, for well, material? It was a weird thing, um, because my relationship with her was weird. We were hanging out for a while, and it was never clear to me why we were hanging out. I mean, we liked each other. But, you know, I have, these, I have these relationships sometimes, or at least I used to, with women where um, I'd find myself with them and unclear as to what they wanted from me, and sometimes unclear as to what I wanted from them. Like, I, with Kennedy, it was sort of a similar thing. Like, we were sort of flirtatious with each other, but it, I don't know, it never progressed beyond the platonic, and I was never sure whether it was supposed to or not. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, I was going to go on to tell some more chapters of your life that um, might fall into the embarrassing or tricky category. How you wooed your wife, Martha, when well, this, she was, you know, she was in a seemingly solid relationship. This was, this was on the heels of sort of hanging out with Kennedy uh-huh. for a while, where I, I became flirtatious with her, this, this woman who eventually became my wife, Martha. But she, w- she was living with her boyfriend, so... It was never clear to me whether what she wanted from me or whether I, I was desperately attracted to her, um, but sort of thought, oh, she just might like me because she thinks I'm safe and or gay, and so <laughs> there's no danger of anything happening. I was very bad at reading women and, and continue to be, I think. Um, 
and uh, certainly was was just I, I've just always futzed um, around the edges of relationships with women and, and was never able to sort of quite un- understand what I was supposed to do or when I was supposed to do it. And this certainly pertains to sex as well. And yet you went after this very good-looking, desirable woman who was already involved with a guy, and you ultimately, uh, can I say, stole her from the guy? Stole, I, that might be too <laughs> strong a word. Pilfered, maybe. Because um, she wasn't... You know what I what I mean. Obviously, she wasn't that happy in that relationship. Yeah, she never would have gone out with me in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, she she in her own way she pursued me as much as I pursued her. She was being coquettish about it. I, mm-hmm. I, I recognize now, mm-hmm. um, but at the time I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And but but in the midst of all that, which I was saying is tricky enough, you then got involved with a college freshman, uh, a seemingly from your description sweet and innocent girl. You were what? All of twenty four or something like that. She was. I, I think I might have even been younger. I think I was twenty two or twenty three. But she was younger. She was nineteen. And you, you know, you you sort of went after her and uh, became involved with her, and then you dumped her like over the phone, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. With with very few words. Just I think we should stop seeing each other or something like that. I, I mean, the, yeah. I just. I. I mean, I was honest with her. But there, there, there was this. You sort of have to read the book to get the full backstory. But but this girl. <laughs> was sort of the culmination, the literal culmination of a fantasy that I'd been having in New York City for years um, of meeting, uh, like, an incredibly beautiful girl at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, it was this fantasy that I'd sort of harbored, and then it came true. This girl, and she still is, is absolutely gorgeous, um, and she approached me. Um, and when that happened, I was totally just like stunned and was like, oh, well, this is clearly meant to be. And I was single at the time. I hadn't started dating my future wife yet. Uh-huh. Um, nor would that have stopped me anyway, because she was living with her boyfriend. So right. I feel like I owed her anything. Right. I mean, we were dating, I, we were, I was dating her at the same time. And she you, knew that. You know, I remember reading years ago that the steps of the Met, the Metropolitan Museum, were a famous spot to pick up people. Oh, so, well, so that was the mistake I made. Because <laughs> I went inside the damn building just sort of wandered around, you know, with my head, at, uh, you know, crooked at an angle, <laughs> looking at pointillist paintings and trying to look intelligent. And hoping that some artsy, lovely young thing would approach you. Exactly. Well, because I, I've always been afraid of looking like a scumbag. I've always been terrified of, like, hitting on women because I thought, oh, well, they'll just think I'm, I'm an awful person if I do that. So, so by necessity, then, they have to approach me. Even though at the time, uh, I mean, the reason she approached you is because you were a performer at that time. You were was this when you were um, on the state, the MTV sketch comedy series. Yeah, she recognized me because she had been to a television taping the night before. So you were a minor celebrity at that point. Uh, yes, yes. And you were you were bound to use it sooner or later. Uh, but I tried to many many times before that. It didn't work. Almost never. See, I'm shocked. First of all, there's just fame. I mean, or even the. The, the semblance of fame, and then there's you do have boyish good looks. You admit that. Yeah, but I was just I was just really terrible at wielding that as a as a as a weapon, <laughs> sexual weapon. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to exploit my own fame, and the only reason I even wanted fame was to pick up girls, um, and I couldn't do it. Part of it had to do with the fact that I didn't drink, and so I just I was in, always in social situations where other people were sort of having a good time, and I was just sort of skulking around, scowling at them. Um, and part of it was just sexual insecurity. You've sort of wanted that fame and that adulation from people um, from the time you were super young. 
Um, you tell a story of having made a day trip to New York. You guys lived in New Jersey, you and your family, and going to Washington Square Park and seeing some, what, juggling unicyclist? Yeah. And saying, that's what I want to be? Yeah, because he, he it, it, it struck me that he had a crowd around him. All, he was on a unicycle. He was juggling flaming torches. I was about eight years old, and that made it an indelible impression on me as to what could possibly be cooler. And then on top of that, I guess it was his girlfriend who was sort of helping him collect money. And so I just, I just always equated performance with just girlfriends. Mm. A lot of people do, and uh, it's not entirely wrong. You, you have a nice passage there. You write about that, that moment uh, of watching the unicyclist. You say, um, eventually I come to realize that any occupation that involves trying to get people to throw dollar bills at you is not a good job. If it were, all men would be juggling unicyclists and all women would be strippers. <laughs> Maybe this is how we create these identities for ourselves, attaching tiny bits a little bit at a time, the same way plaque accumulates in our arteries and eventually kills us. Because from the moment I see that juggler, I want to move to New York and be a performer. I mean, it's nicely written. All I can say is... Look, I did a good job with that passage. <laughs> so... You did eventually move to New York and become a performer. Yeah, and that's where that was. That's why, because because <laughs> that guy on that unicycle. I mean, not entirely, but but certainly that was a little bit of plaque that accumulated in my uh, arteries and will eventually kill me. And, and and another bit accumulated when you were in a play at summer camp. Yeah, and, and I did this play, and 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 concurrent with that was me uh, obtaining my first girlfriend, this this girl that I fell in love with at Jewish summer camp. Um, in the book, I say she looked like a Jewish Pippi Longstock, <laughs> and that is my memory of her. Um, and I was just, I was just head over heels for her. And I was nine, you know, or ten. I don't know how old I was, nine or ten. Um, and we ended up doing this play together, and and and, and I, she was my first kiss, and there was something else sort of sexually uh, alluded to uh, that, that you happened. did. That you, neither you nor she even understood. No, we didn't. No. Can I, I don't even, I can, say, can I say what that is? Sure, go ahead. So her friend came over to me one day in rehearsal uh, backstage, and, and the girl's name, the, the, the girl that I liked, her name was Meredith, and her friend said, um, Meredith wants to give you a blowjob. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> I'm She's like, do you know what that is? I'm like, yeah, that's when a girl blows in a guy's ear. <laughs> Had you heard that expression before? No, I've never heard it before. In, I, I, I think, even as I'm saying it, I'm, I feel like I'm remembering that when she said it to me, I sort of thought it was like a blow pop, the lollipop. Ah, okay. It had something to do with lollipops, but I knew that couldn't be right. So that I, I, I just very quickly did the math and surmised that it must be when a girl blows in a guy's <laughs> <laughs> oh God! But there's that word "job." You know, it makes it sound like maybe it's. Well, it makes it sound like tedium in work. Yeah, exactly. Which I think for the lady, it often <laughs> is. By the way, that part's not going on radio. That's going in the online version of this interview. <laughs> um, so you wanted to become an actor at that point. Do you think of yourself at this point as an actor, or is the word comedian okay? I don't like either of those words. Oh, is that right? I don't know what I am. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I have a good job description for myself, and I. You know, when I meet new people and they ask me what I do, it's the most profoundly uncomfortable question for me. Really? Because I don't know how to explain it, and I don't, and, and I don't want to say, like, I mean, and I don't like those answers. I don't like to say I'm a comedian. 
because then there's weird expectations about being funny. And I don't like to say I'm an actor because then there's, oh, what have I seen you in? Which is the worst question you can ask an actor. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I guess this probably happens no matter how famous you are, but you've been in a number of TV series. Oh, I know. I know. You've been, uh, you've been on the big screen. <laughs> you've done stand-up. You know, you certainly made the rounds at talk shows and all the other things that um, well-known actors slash comedians do. Why, why is that awkward to say that? It, because even talking about what I do, I think sometimes feels like bragging. Oh. Which is, 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 is the furthest thing from my intention when I'm describing it. Um, but then downplaying it also feels phony. Uh, because I don't want to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm an actor, you know, because then it's, it's that, no, but what is your day job? You know, I just don't want to have to, I don't want to have to explain myself. Uh, it, 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 I find it just profoundly, profoundly uncomfortable. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, well, I, I'm going to have to introduce you as something, and I think I am going to call you a comedian and an actor. Well, you're, you're welcome to call me whatever you like, <laughs> but, see, but see, like right now, we're talking about a book that I wrote. I'm yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a writer. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, you're a writer now, too. This yeah. week, I'm a writer. I'll make, that, I'll make that clear. I'll make that clear. Well, I've also thought of you as a comedic actor, too, because I'm most familiar with you through various forms of sketch comedy and uh, sitcoms. Michael and Michael have issues, and... Uh, and Stella, but they involve acting, real acting, not just doing jokes. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I intended to be an actor. That was always my intention. Um, I certainly never intended to be a comedian or even a purely comedic actor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to think of myself at least partially as an actor. You know, in watching, uh, especially Michael and Michael Have Issues and uh, Stella, in Michael and Michael, it's you and Michael Showalter. In uh, Stella, it's you, David Wayne, and Michael Showalter. You're all acting, but you're all acting like these incoherent bundles of sort of impulses and odd emotions and acting out, you know, but not like coherent personalities, you know? Well, in Stella, that's certainly much truer than in Michael and Michael. Yes. I mean, I think yes, in Michael and Michael, I have issues. <laughs> we're acting like real people, but just like the worst versions of real people. I guess so, yeah. The, the most petty... Um, jealous, conniving, backstabbing people. But it, but in no way is it very Tay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it kind of is. <laughs> They're extreme versions of people. <laughs> and Stella is really like about three ids, you know, just exactly. three, yeah. three people with no self-awareness or impulse control right. or, or logic. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, there's this new Three Stooges movie. And yeah. And honestly, I, I, I admit to myself that I watched a lot of Three Stooges when I was a kid, but when I reached a certain age, I think I tried to put that behind me and, and uh, never thought about it again. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there is now a movie has made me think about it again. Uh, and what was so funny, and was it just juvenile, or is there something better than that? Were you three guys? I mean, you must have been likened to a kind of intellectual Three Stooges or something. Although it's not a comparison that I think we wanted to make. No. It's, it's probably an apt comparison in some ways. We, we sort of thought of ourselves more as Marx Brothers because that's more highbrow and, exactly, and, yeah. and, and more well-respected yeah. than the Three Stooges. But the Three Stooges might be a better comparison. Um, although we weren't, we're not slapsticky. And, and oh, there are times when you are reduced to beating the shit out of each other. Um, yes, but the difference <laughs> is that when we do that, the joke oftentimes is how unslapsticky it is how sort of vicious it is, mm -hmm. as opposed to the mm -hmm. Stooges, who it's always cartoonish. It's yeah. always, 
th- their joke is the sort of the sort of um, cartoonishness of violence, and ours is the opposite. Just that we can go so far in our violence. It's the joke of ultraviolence, which of course isn't funny at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny in, in this in this book, which really goes back to your childhood, uh, relates a lot of really significant uh, incidents in your life. Um, I don't think you once mention loving comedy, having any comedy influences as a kid, uh, growing up. Did I miss something, or am I right about that? No, you're right. And why is that? I wanted to write as little about show business as possible. Uh huh. Um, for a few reasons. Um, one, because I felt like it was presumptuous. Um, somebody like me, who really has existed more or less on the margins of of show business, um, you know, successfully in my own way, but but I haven't broken through in any commercial way, in any mainstream way. And so I thought, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of wax poetic about show business. Too, it wasn't really what the focus of the book was. No, I'm thinking, though, Michael, I'm thinking more about you as a kid. I mean, you had to deal with some tough things. I mean, um, your parents divorced when you were how old? Five. Five. Your dad died when you were 12? Mm-hmm. Those are two biggies right there, and, and there are other things as well. But at no point do you say, boy, there was, you know, I really love turning on the TV and watching this or that. I mean, you don't talk about the consolations of comedy or well the only thing the only mention of that i do talk about is um when my dad died that night my mom said my brother and i could watch we could we could rent any video that we wanted from the video store and so we picked out the blues brothers which was something that i'd always sort of wanted to see but wasn't old enough to see because i uh-huh. loved i loved belushi and dan Aykroyd, and it was rated r and uh-huh. she and she let us rent it um that's the only time i think i i, I talk about sort of gaining comfort from from comedy um but it, comedy as much as it's been an important part of my adult life, I never thought of it as an important part of my childhood. I never had aspirations, really, of being a comedian. I never, I never spent any time intellectualizing comedy the way somebody like Judd Apatow did as a kid. Right. Um, there were things that I liked um, in comedy and, and responded to, but I think no differently than any kid does. I loved Eddie Murphy's albums, and I loved Richard Pryor, and I loved um, Bill Cosby. And I love Belushi, as I said, and, but it never occurred to me that that's what I would be doing for mm-hmm. my career. Um, but there were other things I loved, too, that had nothing to do with comedy. You know, I loved That's Incredible. It was my favorite all-time <laughs> television show, which was just a show where they just showed things that were incredible. Mm-hmm. It was basically like YouTube, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, here's a guy folding himself into a box. I'm great! A guy um, grabbing an arrow out of the air that's headed straight for his head. Yes, I remember that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And some guy's screwing up, a guy whose specialty was to have a car drive straight at him at like 80 miles an hour and jump. jump over it. Yeah. yeah, except he mistimed it and <laughs> lost a leg. Yeah, essentially, essentially, like if I had to pick between, like, <laughs> between being a comedian or being on That's Incredible, I would have picked That's Incredible in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, are you disappointed that, at all that you're like, it, it does seem like somehow accidentally or, or whatever, you and comedy are married, you know? No, I'm not disappointed at all. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> I mean, I'm 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 very grateful for whatever success I've had, and um, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities it's afforded me to express myself creatively. Mm-hmm. And as I've gotten older, as I got into comedy when I was starting when I was about 17, um, I I became a student of it the way anybody who's in any profession becomes a student of that profession. So I I I I enjoy I enjoy it intellectually. I enjoy it. Um, uh, aesthetically, like there's there's a lot to like about comedy if if once you once you get into it, 
Um, so, yeah, I'm grateful for it. So, intellectually, tell me about some of your comedy studies. You know, any comedian will spend innumerable hours thinking about, or talking about, dissecting, analyzing specific jokes, sketches, rules of comedy, um, performers' styles, mannerisms. There's a lot to talk about. You you can get as deep into it as you want to get. I mean, you know, Freud wrote a book about it. So is there anybody you're studying now? I mean, people who fascinate you, who you kind of... Well, it kind of never stops. Uh Uh-huh. I've been tracking uh, Louis C.K., who I've known for years, and his evolution. And what what really fascinates me about him right now is the way he's able to really take, and this is the hallmark of, I think, any great comedian. He is a great comedian. He's able to take sort of very big issues and distill them really to their essence and make them personal. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of get right to the sort of nub of something and express it from his own point of view, and in doing so, sort of illuminating the larger truth of whatever he's talking about. Mm-hmm. That's really the hallmark of a great comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think because I know him, and because I've seen him so many times over the years, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious uh, of his work, and, and, and although I don't know his process, I feel, like I, I feel like I have a sense of it, and I feel like I have a sense of how he does what he does. And that's been really interesting to me. Did you know him um, before he vaulted uh, to really the status of the comedian's comedian? Oh, yeah. No, I've known him for probably 20 years. So did you see it coming at some point? No, but that's not to say that we all didn't always find him hysterical. I did. I also know that Louis has gone through uh, a ton of failures um, along the way. You know, he's had a lot of pilot scripts and failed shows and and this and that. So if I'm surprised, it's it's only because I'm not surprised at his talent or his his prodigious uh, ability to, to create. It's more that I'm surprised that the rest of the, the nation sort of caught up to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is surprising. And <laughs> sometimes there are so many great people who are never really embraced, and he has been embraced. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You you said a lot of disappointments. Now, the shows that we've mentioned so far, uh, The State lasted just a couple years on MTV in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Stella lasted one season. Yep. And Michael and Michael lasted one season. Yep. All were axed, right? Oh, yeah. What was that like? It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it sucks when that happens. There's, there's nothing good about it uh, because you pour everything you have into something, and you think, oh, I'm doing really good work here. I'm proud of it. And then, you know, America says, no, thank you. You know, that's, that's, that's just very disappointing. There's no badge of pride there that most good things do get canceled? No, because most bad <laughs> things get canceled, too. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you could, lump, you could lump your own stuff into however you want to, but, um, you know, I, I, I hope that it's good. I, I stand by the work. Um, but no, there's no badge of honor there. I wasn't setting out to, to create, you know, obscure failures. It must be a little bit of a consolation, though, that these days at least stuff lives on in a variety of forms online, on Hulu, on DVDs, so that it can continue to gain a following and, uh, and, and become sort of a cult item long after some short-sighted network cancels it. Yeah, and I am, I am glad about that. I am glad that people can see this stuff um, 
so yeah, that uh, I would say that that is some small consolation, and small is the operative word. <laughs> So you spent a lot of time though collaborating with um, the guys that you were involved with uh, on the state, especially David Wayne and, and Michael Showalter. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys still work together? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, have you three sort of ever said to each other, like, this is what we're doing? Because you have a very specific kind of comedy. Um, I tried to attach a few words to it earlier. Um, it's very much its own thing. I mean, it draws on kind of absurdist traditions like Monty Python and stuff, it seems to me, but... It's very much its own deal. It's not quite like anybody else's. Um, if the question is, did we set out to do that? Or, or did you come up with a description of it at any point? Did you guys realize at any point, this is who we are, this is what we do? It's well, not who, like we, anybody are, who else. we are as a threesome is different than who we are in whatever other permutations that we may end right, with. Right. You know, any, any single performer develops their own voice, and I think that's true for groups as well, any, any duo or trio or however many people. You develop a voice that is your voice in, 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 by yourself or in collaboration. With Stella, the three of us working together, um, that voice very much evolved. I don't want to say it was deliberate. The, the, the evolution of it was organic, but once we sort of honed in on what we were doing, we understood it and and really did our best to play with it and to take it as far as we could. Uh, you know, the the few words I tried out earlier were like absurdist. I talked about characters being sort of a bundle of impulses. Um, it, it has that kind of ricochet quality of, of improv in a way where one thing leads to another in very unexpected and, and sort of not planned yeah. ways. Was it improvised at all? No, not no, at all. Not the at TV all. show was was in, was entirely scripted. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I, I take that back. There there, there might have been moments, and I know there were moments where where yeah, we 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 improvised certain scenes, but but by and large, uh, it was it was all scripted. Uh-huh. And we that 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 thing that we do, whatever you want to call it, started with the state, and really found a kind of distinct voice with Stella, and it's something that I always sort of. Um, referred to, at least in my own head, as, as a kind of American surrealism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it asks a lot of the audience. It asks you to have faith that what we're doing <laughs> actually has there's something behind it. It's not just <laughs> sort of random anarchic uh, responses. It's you, you have to you have to sort of understand a lot about pop culture. You have to understand a lot about genre. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot that it asks of you, and so it doesn't surprise me, in retrospect, that an that, a, that an audience member tuning into Comedy Central randomly flipping through would look at that and go, "What is this? This is the worst thing I've ever seen." <laughs> well, I'm sure it has many admirers. It does, but but well, but many is a relative number. And I'd like to remind listeners that this is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. The show is The Seventh Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today, my guest is the comedian and actor Michael Ian Black. We're talking about his life and his new memoir, You're Not Doing It Right Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. And before we get back to the interview in just a moment, I'd like to play a clip from Michael and Michael Have Issues. This is the sitcom created by Michael Ian Black and his friend Michael Showalter. It ran on Comedy Central in 2009. In this sketch, Michael Ian Black is a customer at a clothing store that sells only sweatpants for depressed people. Michael Showalter is the sales clerk. Oh, hey there. Welcome to Sweatpants. Oh, hi. How are you? 
Not so good. Oh, assumed as much. Yeah. Would you, you can get fired. Dumped. Mm-hmm. Girlfriend left me for my best friend. Wow, that's much worse. <laughs> so you're probably going to be wanting to jump into a pair of sweatpants, eh? Right away. Well, you came to the right place. I want to just ask you a few questions so that we can pick out the perfect pair of sweatpants for you. Okay. Now, would you say that you are more sad or lonely? Ah, uh, I would say I'm desperate. Mm-hmm. So okay. I guess a combination of sad and lonely. All right. Quick question about fit. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of weight, how much do you think you're going to be gaining? Are we talking 10 to 15, 20 to 30? Or are you just going full-on morbidly obese? Yeah, no. I, I say, okay. I'm All right. going. Okay. okay. All right. Well, you know what? I'm thinking, and this is just on a lark, but is this going to be your primary pair of pants? I'm thinking this will be my only pair of pants. Okay. So you'll be wearing it inside, outside? Yeah, I'll be wearing it everywhere. Okay. And what about washing? I won't be washing them. No washing. Yeah. So come on over here. Um... This woman, she you're gonna be calling her in the middle of the night. Yeah, I'll be calling her, trying uh, to get her back, texting her. Whole deal. Yeah, I've got I've got her email password, uh-huh. so right, right, I'm right, gonna right, be on right. that a lot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Let me ask you a question about the sweatpants. Yeah. Do stains show up on those? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Everything. Everything okay. shows. And now back to today's interview with Michael Ian Black. <laughs> uh, let's get back to your life a little bit. We talked about um, your dad dying when you were 12 and the circumstances were really weird. Um, can you, you know, tell me what exactly what happened? <laughs> I was just sort of waiting for the question. I mean, I knew what you were asking, but I was just sort of making you. <laughs> I know. You're, you know that was reason. an awkward silence there. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. He was taking graduate classes, I don't even know in what, at Rutgers in New Jersey. And one night the cops found him on the side of the road, um, I want to say bleeding profusely from the head, but I don't even know if that's true. I know he had a brain injury. So he was brought in for emergency brain surgery and survived that. Um, But it sort of set into motion a series of, uh, you know, medical events that culminated with him being readmitted to the hospital months and months later with, he had some sort of infection, I guess, in his leg, and and they, they administered some medicine that he was allergic to that was on his chart and they didn't see it or they didn't know and 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 that ultimately ended up killing him so it was, it was this drama that was sort of played out over months when and and just at the time when we thought oh he, well he's fine and he's gonna he's gonna be fine uh, is when he died so i use the word weird which is a really insensitive word to use it was the only- well it was it, 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 it was weird it, it was totally weird i mean just from start to finish it was weird it was just it was sort of Bizarre and in in and because I was young, inexplicable. Um, it's still kind of inexplicable to me. It still remains somewhat mysterious as to exactly how it all happened. Um, and weird is as, as as accurate a descriptor for it as anything. The police never got any clue as to who had assaulted. No, him. and in fact, when I say when I say I'm not sure that he was bleeding or not, there was some sort of speculation later that he may have suffered uh, a stroke or something, that he wasn't assaulted. Oh. But, but I think he had, he had fallen, perhaps. I think he was, I think he was bloodied. I, 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 don't, I don't, the truth is I don't know. Huh. Um, they had assumed it was an assault, um, but it's possible it wasn't. Huh. Um, but then he died, not as a direct result of the assault, but because of sort of gross medical error yeah. down the line. And the way you write about it, you know, I mean, I think it's obvious that it's 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 incredibly tragic and sad and all of that. But you write about it from a kid's perspective, and uh, the sense I got was that you weren't experiencing overwhelming sadness. I mean, you were thinking in kid-like ways, including 
what's in it for me? That was mostly what I was thinking about. Uh, like people are going to start cutting me slack and treating me nice and doing special favors for me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's mostly what uh, his death was about for me at the time. You know, and a lot of that is just obviously immaturity and and not really understanding. Um, although at age twelve, you should have a better sort of understanding of of the repercussions of your parent dying than I did. But yeah, I mean, like starting with getting the Blues Brothers video that night, it was sort of like, oh, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Um, and a lot of it, I think, was denial and mm-hmm. shock and and just not processing or having the ability even to process the events. Was there a time later in your life when it hit you harder? Yeah, actually. Um, much later, my freshman year of college, uh, I felt like, I remember a very specific moment that fall when I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown might be too strong a word, too strong a term, but I definitely was had fallen into a kind of deep depression. It, it, it somehow related to my dad, and I, I felt like this this overwhelming urge to to visit his grave, which I hadn't done since he died. Uh, it was lo- it's located far away from from where we lived, and uh, I talked to my mom, and and we drove up there one weekend, and and I, I think that helped. Mm. One, I mentioned a few things um, that you don't do in this book that are typical of memoirs that I, I suspect you consciously avoided. And another one uh, is the fact that you at no point tie that trauma or, or the trauma of your parents' divorce to any sort of later issues or events in your life. You don't say, oh, because my dad died, that's probably why I ended up maybe being depressive or something like that? Yes and no. Yes, I don't get Freudian about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no excuse making in the book. I'm not saying because, you know, my mom was in this shitty lesbian relationship. That's that's another thing we didn't mention, but after your mom divorced your dad, you guys all moved in with her lover, right? Yeah. And for a time, you were told to say she was your mom's sister. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because 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 it just wasn't. There was no lesbian chic then. It was nothing. Right. The gay rights movement was just sort of just sort of bubbling up. The AIDS crisis had just started to emerge, and um, you know, it, it, in my suburban town in New Jersey, it, it just wasn't. It wasn't going to be embraced, mm-hmm. even though everybody knew. Right. Um, but as it relates to my dad, I definitely talk a lot in the book, well, not a lot, a little bit in the book about how becoming a parent has made me very aware of just of my own relationship with my own dad. Um, not in terms of like, I, want, I don't want to do this, I don't want to make the same mistakes he did or anything else. It's just you, you become aware of a line of generations that precedes you or preceded you in a line of generations that's sort of going to come after you. And I think until I had kids, I had no awareness of, of, of myself on a continuum of time. I sort of thought of myself as, as, as time itself, <laughs> <laughs> as, as the center and all being of the universe. <laughs> that comes through clearly. Uh, you know, there's another passage um, I'd like to read, and the reason I'm reading them is I don't, don't want to make you go take the time fishing through your book to read them, although I'm sure you do a much better job than I would. You have a gorgeous speaking 
Backing Boys. I wonder if, like me, there are people who occasionally experience the curious, disembodying sensation of not recognizing their present life as their own. It is a feeling I can only describe as being the opposite of déjà vu. Rather than feeling as though you are reliving some unique moment in time, it is as if you are experiencing the mundane activities of your everyday life for the first time. So that's what this book is about, those occasional instants when I do not recognize my life as my own, and I'm left wondering how I got there. Um, that's sort of what you're talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. It's a feeling of kind of dislocation in your own life and not understanding, or not even recognizing your own life as the life you, you sort of had envisioned for yourself. And yeah, I have that. I have that feeling all the time. Did this book change that at all, putting it all down on paper? No. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> the book's been out now for a little over a month. Uh, I imagine a lot of people have come to you and said, yeah, you got it. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah, it's been kind of nice to, to, to hear that, to, to hear that people have gone through the same things that I've gone through. Um, it's really nice, actually. You reveal um, toward the end of the book that... Uh, you have had episodes of depression and that uh, you're taking meds for it, um, Lexapro, mm -hmm. one of the famous class of drugs that includes Prozac. You know, that's not uncommon among some really good comedians. I think it's not uncommon among just people in general. I suppose that's true. I mean, I think everybody's depressed. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, 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 it's widespread. And I, th I guess the one thing that interested me is some people might think, oh, those drugs might kill your sense of humor, mm -hmm. you know? They obviously don't. No, not at all. I mean, it, it's very hard to be funny when you're miserably depressed. It's much easier when you're not. That, that's been my experience anyway. Uh, <laughs> although there are plenty of comedians milking misery, yeah? Yeah, but you, you, you speak about it comedic. I, you know, I, I, think, I, I think I had the fear that, that every probably creative person has when you start taking antidepressants, which is going to blunt your personality. Exactly, exactly, yeah. But my experience is that that's not the case at all. It just, it allows you to function and to express your personality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm also not convinced they work. Uh, really? Medi medically speaking, I talk about this in the book. Um, there's been a lot of studies done that say they're no more effective than placebos. Um, they work for me. And whether, it's, whether or not it's a placebo effect, I don't even care. I just know that I feel better when I'm on them than when I'm not. So mm -hmm. I, I continue to take them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, are you happy with your, your level of fame these days? I mean, we talked about how from the age of seven or eight, when you saw that fire-eating, juggling unicyclist, um, you sort of wanted some of that, you know? Well, yes, but I was a child. Um, <laughs> as I got older and got into the business a little bit more, I, I recognized very quickly after I started to get fame um, from the state on MTV was that that by itself meant almost nothing to me. And, and in fact, I don't like it. Um, but that fame in my business is a means of keeping score. And the more, you know, the more you have, the sort of more you're able to do. That's the only reason it's useful. Um, it's because it just allows you to pursue what you want to pursue. Um, I'm much more interested in money than fame. <laughs> I have a depression-era mentality that will never, ever, ever go away. Um, was was money scarce when you were a kid? I mean, in the it was always a concern. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't pursue fame, and nor do I even really understand people who do. 
or at least for its own sake, mm-hmm. uh, it, it feels grotesque to me when I when I when I feel like I'm seeing that, um, which is why I can't watch like reality shows or anything like that. I don't I don't find them entertaining at all. I just find them upsetting. It does seem to be a, an American pathology these days. I think a pathology is a good word for it. <laughs> That's exactly the word. You know, again, we said this book is very revealing uh, of some intimate stuff, including therapy sessions with your wife when you guys were fighting a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's a very funny passage when you talk about sort of learning some of the exercises that your uh, therapist teaches you about listening, repeating back to your spouse her issues after she stated them to you, being uh, less argumentative and being really compliant, and then saying, um, you could hear your inner audience applauding you when you were acting good. Right. So this inner audience thing, is that related to your idea of yourself as a performer, or is that different? I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe nobody else has this, but I suspect other people do, where you sort of feel like, as you go through your life, that there are these unseen eyes watching you and sort of sort of critiquing you, almost from a performance point of view. That's the way you sort of go through your life. I mean, you know, you, you hear people talking about the inner critic, um, that, that voice in your head that tells you, you know, when you're screwing things up or when you're, well, mostly when you're screwing things up. To me, it's just sort of that, that voice, that inner critic can, can, can be sort of expanded as far as you want. So there are times where I, I, I feel like the star of my own movie, and I think, I think other people must feel this. Um, and so you sort of go through life as, as the grand protagonist, um, when of course you're you're just not you know you're just yourself. Is that inner audience? I mean, is it a bunch of people who who look warmly on your exploits? Oh, and... they rarely look warmly <laughs> on my exploits. <laughs> they, they uh, you know, it's a movie that 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 they, that they pay ten bucks when they're and they're thinking, oh, that might have been a little high. That might have been a little costly. You know, some people have an inner um, like sportscaster or play-by-play announcer. Yes. You know, there he goes. Yes. Oh, he's going to do it. He did it. Amazing, you know. Yeah, I don't have that as much, <laughs> although I certainly do. Um, you know, I was thinking as I read your book, though, um, you, you described your life as kind of a movie. There's movie potential in this book. Uh, and I don't know whether that would be, like, very unwelcome to take such an honest thing and real thing and have it turned into a kind of entertainment. Um, I don't know. You get Benjamin Bratt to play me. I'm I for anything. <laughs> You just get Brad involved, and I'm—I'll sign up. <laughs> Has that occurred to you, though? Um, well, because I am a whore, as I've described, <laughs> of course it's occurred to me. I don't know that there's a movie in there. I mean, it's, there's nothing particularly dramatic about it. It's—it's it's, uh, so much of it is internal. I think if if it's anything, it could be a, a television series. Not even so much like a literal translation of the book into a television series, but more just like tonally. Well, what are you working on now? Well, I have another book coming out in like a month. Not a memoir, though. No. You did that. Uh, Two months, I guess. It's a political book that I wrote with Megan McCain called America, You Sexy Bitch. Oh, wow. Megan McCain, the daughter of John McCain. That's the one. And you, I think I can safely say from... You know, reading your blog and things like that, you're you're on the left left side of the spectrum, right? I am. Yeah, and Megan McCain is a kind of progressive Republican, I guess you could say. That's a a pretty good description. Yeah. Yeah. So, how'd you guys get along in in writing this? We got along great. We we didn't really know each other when we started this this uh, book together, 
And over the course of writing it, we got to know each other really well. And we went on a road trip um, across the country uh, to just sort of talk to people about America. This book is, is, is the culmination of that journey. Did you guys argue much? We argued a fair amount uh-huh. and continued to argue a fair amount. Uh-huh. But, but uh, you know, I love her. I'm, I'm, I just, she's, you know, she's really become like a, a, a sister to me. Well, all I can say is it'll be refreshing when it comes out to see people on not opposite sides, but certainly different points along the political spectrum, not at each other's throats. Yes, and that was sort of the point of the book, is the two of us who don't know each other and really have almost nothing in common can get into an RV together for a month and travel the country and not want to kill each other, which is, you know, better than a lot of husbands and wives do. (laughs) And that book is expected to come out when, did you say? June 5th. June 5th, and it in part tells the story of that? That's all it is. It tells the story of that trip. Well, in that case... um, I'd like to book you for another interview. I'm on. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. Michael Ian Black. His new book is entitled You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'll be back next week right here on KUSP. We are on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>